Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm really honored to be in the room tonight with one of my favorite directors and writers, Nick Meyer, Nicholas Meyer. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's uh, lovely to be here. Nick, as many of you know, is a, a wonderful film director. We're going to talk about time after time tonight. Uh, um, we can. Uh, I, I just can't tell you how much fun that movie still is 40 years later. And what I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, because a lot of directors these days are being the, asked the same question. Are movies still fun? Because I I find that you know, the, obviously the Marvel movies and the big epic science fiction movies are designed to be fun entertainment, but cinema in general has gotten very serious over the years. And I'm just wondering what's your view, having made what I consider to be several of the most fun movies ever, how you feel about the state of the business right now? I also made the most violent movie ever, um, which is The Day After. Um, that, that probably takes the cake for the most violent movie of all time. Um, I've also done two Philip Roth novels, which I wrote uh, or adapted from Philip Roth, The Human Stain and The Dying Animal, which I retitled Elegy. Um, so I do all kinds of movies. On my website, I describe myself as a storyteller. And I've never, in my own mind, made much distinction between whether it was a funny story or a sad story or a science fiction story or a historical story or a bellicose story. I, I, it didn't matter to me as long as it was a good story. And somebody said, well, what's your definition of a good story? And I said, well, a good story is a story that once I tell it to you, you'll understand why I wanted to tell it to you. Um, and I, I I, don't sort of go beyond that. I should also uh, uh, suggest in the same breath that artists are not the best judges of their own work. We're, we're, we're not reliable or objective people. It's just another opinion. You lose all proprietary authority over your creations once they're finished. They're out in the wide world and people will make of them what they want. Um, I think that we use the word entertainment in a funny way now. We use it as a kind of synonym for mindless or disposable. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm the guy who still finds Hamlet mucho entertaining um i don't need it doesn't need to be a comic book movie for me in fact i tend to despise comic book movies i um i, I hate the word superhero it just it it, it bugs the living crap out of me i i i, I want to see regular heroes i want to see people grappling with stuff that makes me feel something authentic that the people who made the film believed in what they were doing and weren't simply checking off boxes 
on some algorithmic demographic calculus that um, you know gets the movie financed or something. Um, I have very little patience with it. So whether my movies are, whether uh, it, it doesn't bother me that there are serious movies. It doesn't bother me that there are funny movies. It doesn't bother me that there are all kind of movies. And I don't think movies per se have gotten more serious. I mean, I don't know about those superhero movies. Are they very serious? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, growing up in the 50s and going to the Saturday morning kitty matinees, I was exposed to a lot of genre movies. I never knew what an issue movie was. In fact, even when I went to the movies with my parents, we didn't see issue movies. We usually saw star vehicles. Now, I'm not saying that issue movies aren't vital. I think that we've that we have an amazing instrument to attack major issues in this country from climate change to politics to diseases whatever and movies can tell a very interesting story they can also tell us wonderful stories about the human condition across many ethnicities i guess i guess what i'm saying is i i miss a lot of the fun i had going to the movies as a youngster and it's probably just me just wanting to see the sinbad movies the tarzan movies even uh classic World War II movies like Guadalcanal Diary and To Hell and Back. Um, I find that Hollywood now seems to be a lot of superhero movies. I know you can't stand that word. And then a lot of serious movies in the last six weeks of the, the movie season. Of course, we're going through a, a you know kind of an aberration now with COVID. So the, the movie season is all over the place. Well, but, I think uh, we're going through an a different kind of I think COVID is COVID is is merely one form of the aberration. We're also witnessing the fragmentation of our country, the polarization um, of values and institutions. Um, all works of art are ineluctably products of the times in which they are created. Right. Mozart doesn't just sound like Mozart. He sounds like late 18th century middle European music, doesn't he? And Renoir doesn't just look like Renoir and nobody else. He also looks like 19th century French Impressionism. It is not an accident that movies made now uh, reflect uh, the times and circumstances the politics, the pol the policies, and the prejudices and the biases in which th th they were created. I would submit for your consideration. I sound like Rod Serling. Um, that uh, if if you watched five movies that were set in 1776, and one was made in 1926, and one was made in 1956. And one was made in 1986, and one was made in 2015, and one was made now. You would be able to tell within five minutes, within five years, when each of those movies allegedly set in 1776 was made. The eyelashes, the ideology, the cinematography, sound, black and white, a million variables would would clue you in 
as to what was going on when the movie was made. And particularly when you get into, I suppose, the treatment of history or, some, you know, if the movie's made in Texas now, there would, there would be no slavery. <laughs> so when you when you were growing up in New York, um, what was your early going movie experience? What were some of your early influences? OK, this is going to be funny because, you know, I I grew up in a in a middle class family. Does anybody remember those? Um, <laughs> after I was born like 15 minutes after World War II ended and I grew up in post-war New York, which was a fantasy place for a middle class family. The opera, the ballet, the symphony, musicals, all that stuff, you could afford to go do that. It wasn't a gated community like now. And so uh, my family, you know, this is like 1953, um, and I'm about eight years old. We didn't have a TV. You know, later on, we we got a TV, but, uh, but you know, and then, and then we got a color TV and all the rest of it. But at the time, I was taken to the movies, and I had never seen a movie. Wow. So the movie I went was taken to see had such a, a profound, catalyzing effect on me that, A, I ran out screaming in terror, and B, I became fixated on that same film in a phenomenon which my father, the psychoanalyst, explained to me was something called counterphobia. And counterphobia is where the object feared becomes the object loved. It's a little related to Stockholm syndrome. Anyway, the movie was The Beggar's Opera, directed by a 23-year-old Peter Brook and starring Laurence Olivier, who became my idol. But all I knew at the time was they were going to hang Captain McKeith. I'd never seen anything like that. The, the screen was ginormous. I'd never seen anything like I ran out screaming. Um, but I became fixated on Olivier, which brings us a little bit to the other part of your question, which is the influences. And it's very tricky to ask people what influenced them, because, A, they may not be aware of all the things that influenced them. B, they may want to shape for your digestion the things that sound cool to say you were influenced by. I might like to say I was influenced by the movies of Robert Bresson or Alain René, but really it was duck soup. You know, um, <laughs> so you have to be, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But, okay, I had this man crush on Laurence Olivier dating from The, the Beggar's Opera. And I saw when I was about, I don't know, 13 years old, that he was in playing in a movie, which I thought was called Henry V. <laughs> I didn't realize it, it was Roman numeral five. And of course, it never mentioned Shakespeare, because they thought you can't sell that way, except Shakespeare makes money every time. But I did see it was swords and knights and armor. And by this time, I was a movie fiend. So, of course, I snuck out of school and went off to see Henry V, as I thought it was. <laughs> and I had a religious experience. I was like Saul of Tarsus 
struck blind on the road to Damascus. I I got religion. I said, okay, this is the best movie. This guy is the best actor. And that other Shakespeare guy is the best writer. And I just stayed in that theater from like three in the afternoon till 12 midnight. There was, you know, you couldn't text your parents and, t- and tell them where you were or anything. So I caught hell when I, you know, staggered in. Um, but I thought, okay, this is the most wonderful thing. And the other big influence on my life in terms of movies that I'm aware of, that I choose to relate with all the caveats that I've given you, was the Mike Todd Around the World in 80 Days. I was a big Jules Verne fan. I also loved the Walt Disney 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I still think is the the best Walt Disney movie there is. Um, And I I was hooked on Jules Verne because my dad introduced me to the the Around the World in 80 Days and 20,000 Leagues. So I went to see those movies and the Around the World in 80 Days movie, whatever one thinks of it now, it came with a program for $2, which I still have. And there was an article in the program about the making of the movie, which was a very big movie. And the article was sort of sarcastic. And it said, you too can make a motion picture. No previous experience necessary. <laughs> and it goes on to say, all you need is $6 million and 12, <laughs> whatever. But I was a kid, I didn't get the sarcasm. I just thought, you too can make a motion picture. No previous experience necessary. So I convinced my dad to help me with our eight millimeter wind up camera. And we spent the next five years on school vacations, on weekends, on holiday, summer, whatever, making our own version of around the world in 80 days. Um, and did it, ha- did it have a con- uh, cameo for with content floss? Um, I, my best friend who grew up to edit my films uh, played Passepartout. Oh, wow. And of course, we shot out of sequence because movies have to be shot out of sequence. Uh, so over five years, I grew bigger and smaller, you know, as the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of funny. Anyway, those were those are the influences, I would say, that I'm aware of that I there's probably others that I'm not aware of. But you uh, do you remember seeing George Powell's The Time Machine in the theater? You bet. For me, it was West L.A., the old Pickwood, now uh, a shopping mall. And I remember the line around the block. It was the 1960. That movie really blew me away. And to this day, it has a factor which I would also say time after time has in spades, which is a certain charm. I think that charm is something to be prized. It's in short supply. Very short supply. (laughs) So I got to tell you, um, it's 1979. I made a date to go to a screening at Warner's to see time after time. I got the, I got a press screening because I was writing at that time for a magazine called Cine Fantastique out of Chicago. Oh, it will. And my date stood me up and I looked at that ticket and uh, I, I said, this is a time travel thing. I got to go to this thing. So I went to the movie by myself, was at Warner's. And I was in such a good mood after I saw your movie, I forgot about the fact that I had been stood up. A few weeks later, I went to the record store when we had record stores, 
and I bought the soundtrack, the Nicholas Roja soundtrack, and I went to the car wash afterwards, and who should be standing there getting her car done is Mary Steenburgen. <laughs> so I went to my car, I got the album on, and I said, would you please sign my album? I'm a big fan. And we stood there for five minutes talking about the movie. Now she's, I remember there being, and we'll get into the whole thing, but I, I remember there being a little bit of a controversy about the ad campaign. She was referring to the ad campaign rather disparagingly as that bull of a watch campaign. And yet I remember an alternative campaign which I never, I don't think ever was presented, or maybe I saw it in an, in an article where it had a series of questions or a series of, of uh, references. He didn't know what a bustle was. She didn't, or, you know, or she didn't know what a bustle was. He didn't know about something about modern times. Do you recall the ad campaigns at all there, Nick? Well, th this is a large uh, can of worms that you've opened. Um, when I finished the movie, my friend and uh, my 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 best friend, he who played Passepartout in Around the World in the Days, he had just finished editing The Wanderers for Phil Kaufman, and we were both at loose ends, and started reminiscing about, oh, remember Around the World in Eighty Days and uh, how we got into this business, and and then somebody said, and I don't remember who, I wonder if it's possible, is is what possible? Is it possible to go around the world in eighty days? without the use of airplanes. And being as my movie was in the can, wasn't gonna open for months, we decided to try it. So we took a train from Los Angeles to New York. We took the uh, Queen Mary or QE2, whichever it was, 1979. Right. Europe. London, boat train to Paris, Paris to Rome, Rome to Mars, Paris overnight train to Rome, Rome to Brindisi, ferry to Patras in Greece. And on Greece, in Greece, we boarded a Russian freighter, the Baskiria, <laughs> and somehow got to Syria for a night. It was wild. And we wound up in Alexandria, and then we wound up in Egypt. Um, and then I got a, I can't remember whether it was a phone call or what it was, a telex from my producer, Herb Jaffe, who said, you better come back here and see what they've got planned for your movie. And I, I said, really? I'm, I'm 40 days into around the world. And Herb, wonderful man of, succinct articulation said it's your movie and so in one 24-hour period i undid the work of 40 days and found myself on the warner brothers lot looking at this ridiculous ad campaign which i ha i have no recollection of i have no recollection of it at all but and i'm a pretty even-tempered person, but I can say, I can tell a lot of things looking at this. One is that you don't like the movie. Two is that you don't give a shit about the movie. Um, and number three is, I'm not going to sit by and let you piss away what I've worked so hard to achieve. 
so I don't know. I suspect that Mary had not been to the preview of the movie. I, I'm not sure she had seen it yet. But what happened was the word was out that Warner Brothers didn't like the movie. And they had asked me to make a whole bunch of changes. And I had refused to make the changes. And Mary and Malcolm's agent had seen the movie. And she didn't like the movie. Really? No. So there was a lot of a blowback that I was getting. And the first preview of the movie, off the lot, not the one you were at, was in Woodland Hills. It wasn't out of town because none of the executives could be bothered to go out of town for this preview. By which point, I felt as if I were going to my own execution. And all my own stubbornness, my intransigence, on and on and on, I thought, wow, you you should have been more political. You should have rolled. You should have made some of those cuts and yada, yada, yada. And so I went into this theater. It's quite crowded. Malcolm and Mary were sitting in front of me. And one of the things that I had fought for was the old Warner Brothers shield coming off the screen at the beginning with the Max Steiner fanfare. And they had said, well, many people ask and we don't do it anymore. And I said, well, I'm not really asking. Um, and I, I just, I'm sure I was impossible. I just bullied my way into a lot of stuff, not knowing any better either strategically or even aesthetically. I was just going from my gut. I was, you know, and they didn't like the music. They hated the music. Yeah, I read I read in Susan King's article uh, at the Times, I guess you did it about three years ago. It said that they were thinking of getting Bill Conti to replace yeah. it. Yeah. And I I had said to Herb Jaffe when we scored it. And I already knew that they they didn't like it. And I said, we should write Roja a letter and tell him how much we love his score. And then we should publish the letter in Variety. And he said, oh, you're starting to learn this business. <laughs> so we did that. And then they couldn't change. You know. Anyway, so the screen with the shield comes, you know, bouncing off the screen with the Max Steiner fan for it, And people started to scream. And they didn't stop screaming until the end of the movie. Wow. And it scored the highest of any Warner Brothers picture in, the pre in their previous three years. And all I remember is the silhouette of Malcolm and Mary staring at each other in complete disbelief. So what she called the bull of a watch campaign, for better or worse, was what I came up with. I said, because what you've got is shit and, and, and shows your, your indifference at best, your contempt at worst for this film. So this is what it's going to be. It's going to, and I sort of stole the idea from the ad for a fantastic voyage. I said, we're going to have a big pocket watch. There's going to be a crack in it. And there's going to be a silhouette of a man running out of that watch. And I think they added the hand holding the watch. Um, the problem with some movies and the publicity and advertising departments 
is if they can't slot it into something else that they've already done, then they don't quite know how to do it. When I when we did the 7% solution, I had to explain this is not a Sherlock Holmes movie. This is a movie about Sherlock Holmes. It's different. And that was, you should pardon the expression, confounding to them. That's the word they finally came up with, confounding. Um, because it, you know, it wasn't Smokey and the Bandit. It wasn't Burt Reynolds in the car. It wasn't in that sense familiar. And it had a precedent. Time after time, and again, I'm just the, the filmmaker. I, my opinion is just another opinion. There's no such word as definitive when it comes to art or biography for that matter. But what I think is confusing to people like the ad department is time after time is five movies rolled into one. It's a romance. It's a thriller. It's a comedy. It's science fiction. And it's a rather mordant social commentary. And it's, you know, and when you see the movie on multiple occasions, different facets strike you. Oh, it's a comedy. No, no, no. It's really a, well, well, wait, no, it's, it's, it's science fiction or, you know, things like that. Um, and because it was all those things sort of rolled into one and it's organic, it's in the premise. I didn't have to, there's no manipulation, very little manipulation. Um, I think it it confused the people in, in charge of it. You know, once the movie scored off the charts in the preview, then they went crazy and booked it into like a gazillion theaters, which was the mistake of overconfidence, I think, because it didn't have movie stars to carry it. Right. So they, you know, they were out there with all these great reviews and everything, but it was like, it really was a movie that needed time to build. Yeah. And that preview kind of. The irony, irony is time after not time needed time, which is interesting. So let's back up a little bit. Uh, this project begins because you have a friend from the University of Iowa who had written an unfinished novel. Is that correct? That is correct. And so tell us a little bit about what it, what kind of um, status it was in when you first looked at that unfinished novel. What were you looking at? His name was Carl Alexander. His uncle, Carl Tunberg, wrote Old Yeller. And the Ten Commandments. No, he didn't write the Ten Commandments. He wrote, he gets green credit on Ben-Hur. Oh, on Ben-Hur, right. There you go. Ten Commandments was written by God. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, who, who does get credit, I believe. Anyway, um, Carl said, I have 65 pages and an outline. Uh, and it's, it, he said, it's sort of inspired by reading the 7% Solution, your book. Would you read it and give me your thoughts? And then back in those days, I had a lot of time. So I said, sure. And I, I read it and I gave him my thoughts. But I had some thoughts of my own, namely, wow, this is such a clever idea, which I would never in a gazillion years have come up with. 
And was it the basic idea of Jack Ripper yes. stealing the time machine? Yeah, it's about Wells pursuing Jack the Ripper in a time machine into the 20th century. And the other thing that I thought about was that it was a much more visual idea than a literary idea. I thought well, this would be so cool as a movie. You just have two guys in Victorian outfits running around a world in which everything they see, and we're seeing it through their eyes, is science fiction. And I was very fond, or I don't know if fond is the right word, but struck by a Jean-Luc Godard movie that I saw when I was at Iowa called Alphaville. And Alphaville, which starred an actor named Eddie Constantine, um, was a sci-fi movie in which there were no sci-fi props. It's just that all the things we knew had different names. And that movie made a tremendous, you know, you want to talk about influences, that movie made a big impression on me. Um, and, you know, I kept lying awake and thinking about his book and what kind of movie it would make. And I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. So it may have been, you know, two months before I woke up at four in the morning and said, you're an idiot. Why don't you option his book? Now, it, was, it was unfinished. Uh, what? Where did he leave it and go to outline? I don't remember. I don't remember because by that time I had written it in my head. You'd written in your head. And so, so I, I optioned it. I wrote the screenplay the way I thought it should go, taking his idea and running with it. And then I gave him the screenplay and I said, here, help yourself. Take whatever you want. Because I thought if, if that helps him get the book published, then that's good for the book. And then the book would be good for the movie. And it sort of worked like that. Uh, Nick, did he did his story take uh, HG to San Francisco? Yes, absolutely. That's okay. all him. That's all him. Got it. Got it. Very, very cool. So what was the first step on taking the screenplay into the marketplace? Uh, the first step was to go to this producer who had sort of become my West Coast father and family, Herb Jaffe. Right. Uh, and Herb had been a very, very successful agent. And then he'd become head of United Artists. And, and he'd sort of taken me under his wing. And um, I dropped the screenplay off at his house. And I said, I'm going to have Chinese food. I'll be back. Tell me if you want to produce this, because I knew I needed a reputable producer. And I knew that if I had a reputable producer and I was coming off the 7% solution, I'd been nominated for an Oscar, I thought, and this is a low budget film, they'll let me do this. If I, you know, come in with come some somebody like Herb. So I came back, you know, an hour and a half later, and he said, absolutely, I, you know, I love this. Uh, in what in what universe does a producer read a screenplay in an hour and a half? I mean, uh, I 1978. I don't know. 1978. <laughs> um, and uh, did he have a deal at Warner's? Is that where you ended up? Because he had no, a deal? no. We we actually you know took it out, and two studios said yes at the same time. Oh, uh, Mike Metavoy at Orion, and. Bob Shapiro at Warner Brothers and Ted Ashley, and they split it. 
and they 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 co-financed it. I got it. Got it. Now I read that. Um, let's see. I think the, you wanted your first choice to play HG was an actor I'd not heard of before. At least I, I'm not familiar with this work. Is it Clive Revel? Um, or someone else? Is no, it... Clive Revel is a very well-known character actor. Okay, so it's not Clive Revel. My first choice was Derek Jacobi. Derek, Derek Jacobi, got it, got and, it. And because and, uh, I'd seen I, Claudius, but but nobody else had. <laughs> it was on public television, you know, who watched it? So that was, you know, and, and um, then I, when I came up with the Malcolm McDowell idea, they said, but, you know, but he's always the bad guy. And I said, yeah, and this time he'll be the good guy. And we call that acting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't think of a more perfect choice. Uh, his, was perfect. His was charm perfect. factor is off the charts. His body chemistry, his whole posture, is the way he conducted himself, he, he was... He was extraordinary. And Watching I, him try to figure out how to open the door of a taxi was <laughs> the price of admission. He raises his hand up and like, oh, and when he goes into the McDonald's and imitates the voice of the guy ordering the Big Mac. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> and also his his costume right out of central casting. He looks like Sherlock Holmes. I mean, it's it's great. Um, how did Mary Steenburgen come to the table? Because she was virtually unknown at the time. She was. Uh, I interviewed a lot of actors who are today really well-known, famous actors, including Meryl Streep and Kim Basinger. Um, and I had this idea in my head that I wanted Gene Arthur to be the girl. I wanted a blonde, blue-eyed, fast-talking, city chippy. And instead, this slow-eyed brunette from Arkansas comes in and, and speaks very slowly. And I was sort of hypnotized watching her. And I thought, and remember, I'd never directed a movie. And there was like, well, there's nobody around. I mean. I think people are going to think I'm really smart if I do this. And I remember back then asking actors to tape was very unusual and they were very skittish about it. But I got her to tape and then I took the tape upstairs to Bob Shapiro. I said, you have to see this. And we couldn't make it work. <laughs> all these executives could couldn't make this vhs thing play and it, or when it finally did play it, it was in color it was in black and white and i said you bob i said you have to see this in color and he looked at me and he said i have a feeling i will and she got the role oh yeah and then um um there was a there was at one point I guess in that Susan King article, she says that um, she mentioned somebody mentioned Mick Jagger as the villain. Yeah, they wanted Mick Jagger to play the Jack the Ripper role. And I I thought I 
I guess, I, um, and again, these are many years ago, so my memory is not perfect. You have to take all of this with a ton of salt. My memory of was thinking, yeah, he could probably be Jack the Ripper, but he's supposed to have an all, you know, uh, an alias as an, an all uh, another identity as a respected Harley Street surgeon, and that I couldn't see, and I didn't want to do it. And somebody said to me, one of the executives, you mean you won't even meet with him? And I thought, you have to learn to be sort of political here, which is not my specialty and certainly wasn't then. But I realized, okay. So I said, yes, okay, let's meet. So I, I, I went to, I guess, a hotel where he was staying. He was on tour. He was exhausted. I was, I don't know what we, you know, we had a beer or something and sat there and and chatted. And then I went back and I I said, guys, I'm still, I I still want David Warner. Um, And and that's marvelous, marvelous in the role. And of course, has mostly played villains. People know him from Titanic and a million other things. Uh, I got a chance to work with him once. uh yeah yeah Uh, there's so many it's interesting um i worked with him in star trek six right he 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 plays a version of abe lincoln isn't he isn't he a klingon Uh, yeah yeah abe lincoln wow wow uh so project such menace the opening scene where he takes the prostitute with that little signature theme. Was that Roja? Was that Roja's little signature theme on his watch? No. Um, I was the, in the screenplay, I wrote that the Ripper's watch had a played a little tune. Right. And I wanted a tune whose innocence would really provide a contrast uh, to his horrific nature. And there was a picture in the watch of a woman from an earlier time, and people can infer, you know, was this his mother? We don't know. But the tune I, I chose was one of the Chansons d'Auvergne, which is a song cycle of 19th century, well, even earlier, songs that was arranged in the 19th century or early 20th century by a a Frenchman named Joseph Candeloube. There are about a million different recordings of these songs of the Auvergne. And this is one of those songs. By the way, it's in the Olivier Henry V movie, (laughs) (laughs) How All Roads Lead to Rome. Um, And... um, so yeah, uh, I played it for for Mickey Roja, and he said okay. And he had a music box made in Switzerland that played that tune. Oh, such uh, you know, we could talk for hours about Roja's uh, just his work. Um, you know, it, it's so interesting for someone to think that you worked on this whole movie, you directed the whole shoot, and none of it is to Roja's music. Obviously, Roja's music comes in later in the process. 
I, I find it amazing because uh, the, the music is so seamlessly intertwined with every aspect of the movie. It's hard for me to picture you standing behind the actors watching this with no music. For instance, the montage of him visiting all these San Francisco banks, trying to find out where Ripper has gone and the music that kind of a, uh, a, a parade processional of him going around is so beautifully done. It adds momentum and power to the piece as well. It's a mystery to me, you know, when, when it works, when you, when you, in a way, what movie composers do, it, it's like scoring to a ballet that's already been that's already being danced. And then you have to sort of find the write the ballet to the to the dancing as opposed to choreograph the dancing to the music. I, this may be an inexact comparison. The why I picked him was besides the fact that I just loved his music, but I wanted the music to reflect a 19th century rather than a 20th century sensibility. The music was from H.G. Wells's time period, which is 1893, when the, I think the movie begins. Um, and so I wanted any music that you heard in the 20th century to be source music, to be pop music, to be another alien sound effect, as opposed to representing his state of mind, his feelings, his perceptions. And the other thing that was important to me was that the music um, reflect the fantasy element of, of the movie, and particularly the time travel sequence. One of the things that I knew I couldn't do and shouldn't do was try to compete with George Powell, who had done that so brilliantly in the Time Machine movie, I it would it would be folly for many reasons for me to try to compete with that. And I thought, who knows what time travel is anyway, or what it would look like, or what it would be like. Um, I had some experience directing uh, radio plays when I was in college, and I thought, gee, wouldn't it be cool? if I could turn the movie theater into a gigantic radio at that moment and just do this with voices from all from 1893 to the present, whether you're talking about Enrico Caruso or Adolf Hitler, or I don't know who, but just, you just hear these voices. And then we just, I don't know, flash some kind of colored lights on the screen in, in a kind of forward motion. Kaleidoscopic thing. Kaleidoscopic motion, yeah. And the 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 actual producer of the movie, the who who got the movie, was was Herb Jaffe's son, Steve, hmm. who's been my partner ever since. He he introduced me in 1978, and he said, "This is my my son, Steve. He'll produce the he'll produce the movie." And I thought, "Oh, great! You know, nepotism. What did I know?" Um, but, uh, you know, he's become one of my absolute closest, dearest friends. And he's produced movies for Jane James Cameron and for Catherine Bigelow. And every he produced Ghost. You name it. He's done it. And he's a guy who sort of figures out how to get things done. And when I told him my idea, he figured out all the colored lights and the 
and the forward motion. And then we added these voices and then we poured Roja's music over the whole thing. And I mean, to me, that was worth the price of admission. Just it was so different from what you would have thought a time travel. It's so funny. It's 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the last news item. I think one of the last news item in your montage is the uh, taking over of the Iranian uh, country by Khomeini. And uh, uh, it's, it's it's so interesting when you go back and see what the future was in those days was 1980. Now it's a lot different. By the way, the design of the time machine was really wonderful, a kind of a steampunk, uh, you know, throwback to Vern. That was probably your your idea as well. It was absolutely my idea. <laughs> all my ideas for better or worse. I, as I said to you, you know, earlier, I was watching 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I think my parents left me in the theater for three days with that movie. <laughs> At the end of the time, I, I had bonded with the Nautilus as the mother ship. Now, the, that, that ship, that Nautilus, was designed by a guy who didn't get credit for it. His name was Harper Goff. And Harper Goff, uh, for some reason, the guild wouldn't let him. I don't know what. But he said to Walt Disney, you know, in Verne's novel, the Nautilus is described as looking like a cigar. No one is going to want to watch a cigar for two hours. <laughs> but he also says that everybody mistakes it for a sea monster. So let me play with this. And the result was that steampunk masterpiece. And so when I wanted the time machine, I said to my production designer, Ed Carfano, I said, look at this, give me that. And that's where that time machine came from, was from the Disney Nautilus. It was our riff on it. And you used the magic you know, phrase, steampunk. So where, where is that time machine today? Well, there's a model of it in my living room. <laughs> How big? Uh, it's about this big. Okay. And, and the original? Well, the original was a, you know, full size. You could climb into it. Actually, it was sort of a weird disaster when the prop department came up with it. And I opened the door. I think the, the door came off. And I, again, I was, I, I was really furious, I'm, which makes me sound like I'm furious a lot, but I, I, I'm not. But I just thought, this is, you're not taking this seriously. I don't know what you think you're doing, but you're not taking it seriously. And I got very angry. Um, I don't know where it is now. They obviously made the door so it worked and, and you know, and, and it, it worked fine at the end of the day. Um, but that was its first, you know, I just remember they rolling it out on a dolly in between two sound stages and me standing there with a bunch of guys standing around in this door, you know, falling off its hinge and saying, why did you do it like this? Why didn't you make it so it would work? Anyway, that's, that's all I can tell you. I think everybody is stolen from you. I think uh, uh, even the DeLorean and Back to the Future, its control panel reminds me a lot of the control panel in your time machine. And then, of course, uh, uh, Back to the Future steals the idea of him reaching in the trash can for a newspaper to find out where he is, etc. Now, well, I, I read, yeah, they yeah. told me that they, I was told 
and I can't remember whether it was Steven Spielberg or told me or who told me. They said, we studied your movie. I'll bet you they did. Yeah. yeah I, which I took as a big compliment. Oh, sure. Now, I read that um, when you came time to write Star Trek Four a little bit later, you said in the interview that you were able to incorporate some uh, of the San Francisco anachronisms that you were unable to do in time after time. Is that true? It is true. Uh, it's worth remembering that as a first-time director making that time-after-time movie, I made many mistakes. I didn't, I didn't know what I was, was doing, and I shot a lot of things wrong. Can you give an example? Yeah, I, I will. Uh, I, there was a scene in the movie where Wells is walking around San Francisco and having caused one car crash because he he didn't obey the sign, he's stuck on a curb and it says don't walk. So he's not walking. And a Chinese kid comes up next to him with a ghetto blaster playing the most awful garbage you can imagine. And Wells would like to leave that spot, but he can't because it says don't walk. So he he's stuck with it. And then later, when he's at Mary Steenburgen's apartment, she says, what kind of music do you like? And he says, anything but Oriental. <laughs> oh, God. And um, so the first thing is that I... I shot the scene wrong with the boy. I I just shot it wrong. I framed it wrong. I was all wrong. Couldn't use it. Um, well, no, actually, forget. I, I, I took it out later. But the, 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 the joke about what kind of music do you like and his answer, audiences didn't laugh because there was so much time between the scene at the curb with the with the boy that they'd forgotten all about the kid right. with the ghetto blast. Maybe if I'd shot it better, they would have remembered, but they didn't. So I, I cut the question about the music, but then I thought maybe I can still leave the, the boy and the don't walk sign and the ghetto blaster, but I couldn't because I'd shot that wrong. So it all bit the dust. But then in Star Trek Four. They're on the bus, Kirk and, and Spock are on the bus, and there's a kid with a ghetto blaster, and Spock just gives him the Vulcan nerve. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> wanted to give him that. <laughs> uh, now, the logistics of shooting time after time in San Francisco, you had some rather large set pieces. I mean, you're, you're chasing uh, David Warner. Uh, you have these car accidents. Um, anything, anything particularly challenging about the shoot in San Francisco? Did you get good cooperation from the city? We did get good cooperation from the city. There were there are two things that jump out at me that were problematic or, or or problems. I wanted to shoot a scene where she takes Wells to lunch in that revolving restaurant. Right. And they're in the St. Francis Hotel, which is not the Hyatt where the revolving thing is. There was a wonderful outside elevator that was terrific because it starts out like a normal elevator. You don't realize you're outside. And I wanted that moment on his face when they come up and you're just floating over nothing. 
and the St. Francis Hotel refused to let us shoot there. And I had never been turned down. Nothing had ever happened to me on anything before. So it was all a first. And they said no. And I said, but Herb, you got to whatever. The St. Francis is owned by United Airlines. They went to United. It was a no, no, no. They'd had a bad experience with another movie company. They weren't going to let anybody shoot in their elevator. So that was one thing. The other thing I remember was that the movie starts off in, in fog-bound 1893 London. And I wanted fog at the end uh, at the Palace of Fine Arts or, or the Panamanian exhibit, whatever, where the, where, where, where the film ends. Right. And we couldn't get the fog. It, it was too windy. It just and we had smoke machines going like crazy and it sounded like, you know, World War One or something. It just and it didn't work. But otherwise, we were really, really lucky. I was lucky. I was lucky that that movie came out good. Well, I think I can speak for fans all over the world that uh, it's one of the great science fiction films of all time. And I, I never get tired of watching it. Uh, I have it on my phone. I play bits of it on my phone. <laughs> I play, I am one of my little hobbies is I play audio while I'm shaving of films. I, they'll have the whole film. I find being a screenwriter myself, it, listening to good dialogue can't help but influence you. And uh, that the, the dialogue in that movie just crackles, uh, Nick. Just thank you so much for doing what you did with that movie. Well, thank you for letting me talk to you about it. Um, I was it was a pleasure, and I just felt lucky. I just felt lucky all around. No, absolutely. Uh, those of you who have been listening, we've been listening to Nicholas Meyer, the writer and director of Time After Time. Um, I hope to have you back, Nick, to talk Star Trek someday uh, in the near future. Uh, I think you're you're a great raconteur, and I appreciate the time you've taken. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies, where every day is Saturday. Mm -hmm.